Ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the UI Breakfast Podcast. I'm your host, Jane Portman, and today our special guest is Tom Griever, UX Director at B2V and author of Articulating Design Decisions, and that's exactly what we're going to talk about today. This episode is brought to you by Balsamic Mockups. Balsamic Mockups is rapid wireframing software that combines the comfort and simplicity of paper sketching with the power of a digital tool, so your work is easier to share, revise, and get honest feedback on. Try it free for 30 days at balsamic.com. Hi, Tom. Hi, thanks for having me, Jane. Thank you so much for making the time for us. Yeah, yeah, I'm happy to. So let's start with the Blitz questionnaire. And question number one is, what do you do for a living? Well, um, as you noted, I'm the UX director at Batovi. We are a small uh, UX and uh, front-end development consulting company. So we help we help other companies uh, design and build their web-based applications. And so I lead a team of designers uh, in the United States. Um, we are a remote company, so everyone works from home. So um, I have a small office in my house where I'm at right now, and I sit at my desk most of the time and and uh, either oversee uh, existing projects for, for clients that, that we're working on. Um, and we do a lot of, you know, kind of larger scale uh, e-commerce apps for, say, like Walmart or Levi's. Um, all the way down to, you know, smaller, you know, startups that you've never heard of before. And so I'm either kind of leading some of those projects with my own team, um, or just as often I'm, I'm working on the projects myself. I'm, I'm a designer, um, I have been my whole career. And so I spend a lot of time in Photoshop and Axure and Sketch and kind of all the, whatever the, you know, n- name your tool. And I, I sit at my desk here at home in Illinois designing stuff. And occasionally we, you know, we travel to our clients on site, you know, when, when we need to be there in their offices. But for the most part, I, I have the joy of working from home. Oh, sounds very familiar to me. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Uh, how did you get there? A bit of your background. Yeah, so uh, you know, like like many people who work in UX now, um, I didn't go to college for UX. I didn't I didn't start out in UX. I started out in in web design at a time when things like web applications were brand new, and and the the web was not very old either. And so. Um, my my undergraduate degree is in business and marketing, and I started out um, and and I and I learned early on in in college. I, I had kind of a knack for doing you know graphic design and understanding how to use software. And so while, while I didn't go to school for art, um, I ended up working in marketing departments doing a lot of design because everybody kind of needs a designer on their project, whatever it is. And so <laughs> even though even though originally my titles were you know marketing coordinator or marketing manager in in smaller companies, especially, I ended up doing a lot of design. And then it wasn't very long before, you know, the company I was working for came along and said, hey, we've got this old terminal-based green screen hardware software product that we sell and lease to our clients, and we want to put it on the web. And this was like a brand new concept at the time. It was very exciting that we could like move all this old expensive hardware to a browser interface. And so I sort of helped 
uh, designed that transition, and uh, it was terrible. Don't get me wrong; it was an awful, <laughs> it was an awful web application. But that was sort of my first foray into web-based applications and interface design. And so ever since then, regardless of my title, I've been involved in one way or another in doing interface and UX design. Sounds like a great story. At least you know how marketing works before you got started. That's a very important benefit. <laughs> Not yeah, it, it's true. Yeah, it's true. And I mean, even just nag- navigating, you know, corporate, <laughs> corporate America, corporate infrastructure, kind of understanding how organizations work. Uh, that was definitely a very valuable uh, experience for me. What does your typical day look like? Uh, well, typical day is that uh, you know I get up and I, I come out to my office and I and I check in with you know everyone on my team. Uh, usually, there's a, a daily stand up that we have with our client um, or with whatever team project we're working on uh, at some point in the morning, and so we do that. Um, and then, other than that, I just I sit at my desk and I, I design stuff and keep up with everybody on Slack throughout the day. Um, I do check in with everyone on my team on a regular basis. So each day, I have you know probably at least one other meeting with uh, one of the other designers on our team or someone else at, at our company. Um, and then you know once a week or every other week, we have demos and check ins with our client uh, where we're presenting our work uh, you know for that sprint or for that week. And then, you know, every other month or so, we probably travel out to be on site at, at, at the client. And those days look a lot different because we're just in their office every day uh, going to meetings. But, you know, like I said, for the most part, I, I get to just enjoy um, being at my desk and chatting with uh, a bunch of smart people. So unlike other people who work at home, you are not, um, you're not really so free that it becomes a problem <laughs> for, for those who are freelancing, for example. Yeah, well, yeah, there's definitely some structure to our day because we we have a team and we have a company and we have clients that, you know, have expectations for us. So, yeah, there there's definitely some structure there. It's not while I work while I work from home, I have a lot of other people that, you know, depend on me and expect to hear from me every day. So, it's it's nice to it's it's a good combination of of flexibility but also having a lot of accountability. Right. What do you enjoy the most and the least about your work? Um, well, both. I, so what I enjoyed the most is the, the team of people that I, I work with. Um, I absolutely love having uh, a team of designers that are super smart and can design stuff even better than I can. And so I enjoy interacting with them uh, on a daily basis. I enjoy catching up with them you know, when we have our, our one-on-ones or our uh, meetings together. Um, there's nothing more enjoyable, I think, than working together with a team and then at the end of that week, watching uh, them present their work to a client, you know, um, and seeing the client's reaction. Um, not, not that it's not, not that the client's reaction is, is always, uh, you know, what we expect or always positive, which I assume we'll get into at some point, but it's, <laughs> it's always good to kind of like see some of that work being done and then take a step back and kind of see, see the end result. Right. And it's, it's really exciting. I think to, um, to, to see that. Did, did you ask me, what do I, what do I like and what do I dislike? Yes. The least oh. part. No. <laughs> um, you know, that, that, that's a hard question because I love so many things about my job. I think, I think one of the things, I, I think it's very difficult being a remote company. Um, and yet that is also one of the best things about our company. So it's, it's, it's hard to say that this is something I don't like, but it's true that it's, it, when you're working remotely, it's not as easy to just 
run in a conference room with people and hammer out a solution to something. Um, that's definitely, you know, kind of, fa- I shouldn't say easier. It's maybe faster and more effective to do in, in person when you're working remotely. Uh, that's just more, that's more difficult, but at the same time, I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade it for the world. So, I mean, we get together as a team, um, probably, uh, we get together as a team at least three times a year, um, just company wide. And then I also see other people from my team, you know, when we're meeting at, at a client, so I do think it's a good balance, but I think that's probably the hardest part is when you when you do have those moments when it's like, oh, it would just be great if we were all in a conference room around a table and could just fix this problem together. Because um, Google Hangouts doesn't always, uh, you know, have the effect that you know you would like. It's it's just not the same as being in person. Exactly. Just as an off-topic, uh, could you introduce us to to the tool set and briefly the process that you use for your team collaboration and design process? Sure. Yeah. I mean, we are relatively flexible when it comes to tools, um, simply because there are always going to be new tools. There are always going to be different tools, <laughs> and we can always learn new tools. So I try not to obsess too much over that. And because all of our clients are different, and they may already have their own processes in place, um, sometimes we have to adapt to, to them, right? And we have to use whatever tools they're comfortable with, regardless of whether or not it's the best tool. I mean, sometimes we will recommend better tools to, to our clients. But, uh, you know, when you're trying to teach someone to use a different tool, it ends up slowing the team down. And so I think we want to focus more on, you know, kind of efficiency and getting things done than, than obsessing over what is the absolute best perfect tool. But that said... Um, I, what, the, the one tool that we use a lot of when we have our say is Axure. Um, we have quite a bit of experience, you know, with Envision, um, and other prototyping tools, but Axure, in, in my opinion, while it's, while it's very complicated and the UI is not, um, pretty, it definitely has a, a more robust set of features to accommodate literally everything that we want to do. Uh, we can put everything from user flows and meeting notes to static designs and interactive prototypes all in one simple URL that will never change on the client project. And, and that, that one simple thing of like just having a URL where our client can always go to see our progress um, is invaluable. Um, it's amazing how often, you know, just when you, when you have disparate documents spread around, how difficult that could be. So actually, actually is the one. And then, I mean, as far as communication goes, we're on Slack and, and Hangouts kind of all day long. And we use, you know, Photoshop and Sketch and, you know, Illustrator sometimes too, just depending on the tool. But those 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 tools, I think, are less important to, to us. What is your next big thing? What is my next big thing? Well, um, I think that uh, as a team... So I mean I've been I've been talking a lot about the book and articulating design decisions for a couple of years now, um, and so one of the things that our team has been focused on a lot more recently is style guide driven development, which is a, a concept and a and a process of allowing your style guide, um, and in our case it's a living style guide, and I can explain a little bit more about what that means, but it's. It's making that style guide the center of your design process. So what, what, what's, what's pretty typical, I think, for a lot of designers, especially on larger teams, is to kind of start with a blank canvas and design a new interface control for an existing app or a new app just kind of from scratch. Um, never mind that there may already be 
you know, UI patterns or controls that already exist in the application that are reusable and should be reused. And so we create live style guides, that is style guides that are generated directly from the HTML and the CSS of the application. And we make that kind of the, the, the center of our design process so that we're taking existing elements, existing patterns that we already have that are probably already functional. They may already have the, you know, JavaScript and APIs connected to them. And then we're bringing that into that blank canvas as a starting point so that when we actually get to the implementation, what we're implementing, you know, you may have 50 to 75% of the patterns already defined. So you're not, you're not reinventing the wheel every time. And so that live style guide stays updated because it's generated directly from the code and your designs stay updated because you're pulling it directly from the style guide. So we're, we're actually in the process of working on a series of, of free, like kind of online courses and tutorials uh, to talk more about this process. And we've, we've blogged quite a bit about it um, uh, on our, on our own website. And um, Adri, one of our designers has an article on smashing magazine, all about style guide driven development. Yes, I'm going to put the link in the show notes. I'm going to find it and link to it. It's it's a perfect trend. It's it has different variations. So for some designers, it means uh, be, being based on a style guide in Sketch, for example. For some people, it's you know pattern library, design systems engineering, whatever you call it. It's a systems process in place, and I'm really happy that you are attacking that. Yeah, I think the the, the old way of doing it was to create like you know. Uh, a, a letter-sized, you know, PDF file in InDesign, and it was this static PDF document that kind of lived on a an internal server that everyone could access. But the problem with that is that it gets outdated in a matter of days sometimes, and so <laughs> it just becomes impossible to maintain, and then people stop using it, right? And so, so part of part of the important part of that process is one having a live style guide generated directly from the code, regardless of kind of the tool that you use to do that, and then the other part of that is incorporating it into your process so that you're actually referencing that and using it because an important part of creating these components is not just, you know, you may be working on a navigation for uh, your web application, but the important part is not to think only about that, that one context for that one element where it lives in the, in the application at the time, but to think about it as a broader design pattern, because you're, you're not just creating the, the one application, you should be thinking about creating an entire design system. So when I'm looking at this navigation, how can I make this navigation so that it can be reused in other places? And so, and that, that's a big part of the process is thinking through how we can create kind of this design system or this framework, as opposed to just one individual element that exists over here in the app, right? And having that style guide at the center is a really important part of that. Absolutely. So let's go back to our main topic, which is uh, articulating design decisions. And the designers who are just starting out, uh, one problem they have is to, to master the skill itself, but everything else that comes afterwards, the actual client interaction is so full of different problems <laughs> that it's equally or even more important than the skill itself. And you wrote a book on that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the the, the problem that I, I identified was that I, you know, I've so I've been, I mean, I've been working in the industry for a really long time and I've been in different roles where I've hired people and worked on teams. 
And as I kind of looked back on my career, I realized that there were some people, some designers that I had worked with that seemed to be, you know, more successful than others. And so you kind of, you kind of, kind of look at these people and go, okay, what, what, what made me drawn to that person more? Why did I enjoy working with that person more? Or why did, why did this person kind of survive in that company, but these other people didn't? And I think what I, what I realized was that the people that were more successful, and when I am talking about success, I'm thinking more about like the people that were more likely to kind of get their their work approved, right? They they were providing more value to the company because they were creating something that was released to the public. Uh, they were able to go to a meeting and 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 get their designs approved, and then it went off to the development team, and then that product got to see, you know, got to go out into the world. And I realized that the difference often between a good designer who had just kind of created an interface and a great designer who could actually see that to the end was communication. It was the ability to help someone understand your designs in such a way that they were inclined to agree to allow you to move forward with that work, even if maybe they didn't agree with the exact solution. Um, But I I think the ability to articulate why we did what we did and why it's valuable and how it's going to provide value to the company is really, really important because if we can't convince our stakeholders, the executives or the managers who are in charge of our work, if we can't convince them to allow our work to move forward, then then there's no point. It doesn't, you can have the most beautiful design in the world, right? But if no one agrees with what you created or if no one is on board with that vision and, and agrees to move forward with that, then it's never going to see the light of day. There's almost there's almost no point. You might as well just go home for the day because the, your work is is not going to be effective. And that that piece um, is absolutely critical to to the process. It is so so true. So let's imagine the most you know basic setup when there is just you, the designer, performing some work for a single client stakeholder. Uh, how would you describe the process? Of and the most successful and likely setup uh, where the, the design work is most likely to be successfully approved. Yeah, well, that I mean, that's a long answer, and that's ultimately what the entire <laughs> what the okay. entire book is about is kind of talking through some of these issues. I, I will say, however, though, that I mean, a large part of my career I spent uh, freelancing, and so it was just me working for smaller clients, um, and you know, there was kind of one stakeholder on the other end. And so that that's a pretty common scenario for me. And so a lot of a lot of the perspective I share in the book is definitely, you know, comes from that that perspective as well. But um I, I think I think one of the things that we fail to do more often than not is to is to really think about the people that we're talking to, to really um, consider what their needs are and how we can present our work in such a way that it's going to solve that problem for them. I think I think too often we look at our work and we either want it to, to look good or we have some specific problem in mind that we're solving, but we're not connecting the dots for our client we're, or, or for that manager or stakeholder. We're not showing them, okay, I, I made this decision so that it will solve this problem over here. Um, I think what's more common is that we just show them our work. We just like rip the, rip the cover off of it and go, ta-da. Right? And we kind of hope, <laughs> we kind of expect that our work, and you, you hear this a lot, right? That our, oh, our designs should speak for themselves as if, as if people should be able to just like look at our work and instantly just get it. Right. Um, and that's not the way that it, that's not the way that it works, at least not in real life. Right. We, we have to be able to explain to people 
why we did what we did, you know, in a way that's going to make sense to them and in, in, in a way that solves their problem, whether that's a business problem or some aesthetic, you know, concern that they have. We have to put it in, we have to phrase it and frame it in a way that's going to make sense to them. Otherwise, we're never going to, going to get anywhere. Let's say there is, yeah, why, I put it as a most simple setup because there are always some more complications. For example, when you are a part of the team, you need to get sign off of a team and you're a manager and only then can it go to the, to the client, which might have a committee sitting over there. So yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, the, the very simple setup involves just one-on-one -on -one communication. Uh, in such case, what do you think is the best format for uh, presenting your work? Is it? an extensive email? Is it, you know, prototyping, a live prototype with comments? Is it a live, a live presentation or a call? I would definitely um, always try to present your work, you know, in, in person or in, in real time, you know, kind of in a, in a live setting, as opposed to, you know, email or just over chat or, or, or something. Um, I, I mean, if you're working just with your own team, And you're kind of informally sharing ideas back and forth. That's that's one thing. But I, I, I most of the book centers around the concept of kind of taking what is a a recommended design and showing it to someone whose approval you need in order to to move forward. And so in those cases, I always recommend doing it live, sending stuff by email. I don't address that specifically in in the book, and I, I recognize that sometimes it can't be avoided. Um, but email is really is really difficult because you have. A, A, you know, a short attention span for people, they may or may not, you know, click the link, they're not going to read all the details. And so there, I think that's kind of a whole other uh, discipline really is learning how to present your work over, over email or Slack. But I, w when you're in person, um, there are a number of kind of recommendations that I have, and some of them I've already mentioned, right? So like making sure that the message that you're presenting appeals to, you know, kind of to the person on the other end. Um, you want to be sure that you represent the user, right? That you're kind of bringing that into the conversation about how your design decisions are going to improve life, you know, for the user. Um, and in the book, I talk about uh, the what I call the ideal uh, framework for uh, creating a response. Or it's, it's the ideal response to design feedback. And ideal is simply an acrostic where each letter stands for one part of the response that you can form. And so the I is to identify the problem, right? We always want to make sure that our designs are connected to a specific problem we're trying to solve. Uh, the D is uh, describe your solution. Uh, so we, we said, here's the problem we're trying to solve and here's the solution we recommend. Uh, the E is empathize with the user, right? We, in some cases, especially with executive types, this we may provide the only window into the lives of our users that they will ever see. And so it's really important to kind of bring that to the, the forefront. And then the A is appeal to the business, right? Because it doesn't, it's not always going to matter if we solve a problem for the user. At the end of the day, we have to like help improve the business or the organization that, that we're working for. And then the last one, which is really important, the L is lock in agreement because it's not enough to just kind of talk about the problem and our solution and how it affects the user in the business if we don't get that agreement. Because if we don't get the agreement, then we can't move forward. Our designs will never you know, see the light of day. And if you remove the L from the word ideal, then all you have is an idea, right? And we need to move Aww. beyond just simply having <laughs> good ideas and form a response that is genuinely ideal. And so that's why that getting that direct agreement from people is, is really critical. Which means that every meeting that you hold uh, should have, a, you know, a specific 
ending where you agree what the next steps are, what gets approved, what needs to be worked on, etc. Absolutely. And so, you know, getting that agreement is about being direct with someone and saying, you know, I, I always recommend doing something rather than nothing. Do do something, even if it's the wrong thing to do, <laughs> and make a decision <laughs> so that you can move forward. You, there's nothing worse than leaving a meeting with like ambiguity about what's going to happen next or what the decision was. You know, you want to be direct in asking in, in asking your stakeholders what the next step is. And usually I recommend asking a direct question like, do you agree? You know, okay, so he, I, I hear what you're saying. This, These are the changes we're going to make. Do you agree? Right. And when you at, you, you, you force them to say yes or no. Um, and if they say maybe or I'm not sure, okay, well, then let's continue the conversation. We don't want to stop the discussion until we understand which, which direction we're headed. Let's imagine you, 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 didn't, you didn't really articulate decisions well enough, so you didn't get a yes, you got a no. What do you do next? Well, I think that's an opportunity to understand where things went wrong. So I think in order for our designs to be effective, um, it ha- they have to have three things. One, they have to solve a problem, right? And I mentioned that a couple of times. It has to be you know, easy or better for our users. But then it, it has to have the support of everyone on our team, including our stakeholders. And so if we're not getting that support, then that's, that's the area that we need to focus on. Okay, well, why didn't we get that support? And so I, I do have people who have, you know, read the book or have seen me talk or done a, a workshop on this and they, they'll tell me afterwards, oh, you know, I did, I did everything you said and I, and I still didn't get approval for, for my work. What, what did I do wrong? Um, and I think it's, it, I think if you look back on it, then you, you should be able to kind of categorize what went wrong in one of those three areas. Either you weren't solving the problem or you weren't solving the right problem, which is just as common. Sometimes the problem that we're solving for changes and we didn't realize it, right? Um, maybe you didn't make it better or easy for your users, right? And, and that's kind of the feedback that you're getting. Or simply you don't have everyone's support. And this last one, you know, getting support from everyone is tricky because it can be difficult to understand why someone is not supporting you in your decision or in your recommendation. And that's where kind of all the skill in articulating design decisions comes in because you have to get to the root of why, right? You have to ask a lot of really great questions to kind of uncover their, their thinking, right? You have to really work hard to get your stakeholders to explain to you uh, why it is that they don't agree with your recommendation. And they'll have a difficult time with it, right? Because they don't necessarily speak our language. They don't understand design. They just have this sense that I don't know what it is. There's just something about it that I don't like, right? And I I talk in the book about converting likes into works, how we need to get people to move from talking about what they like and what they don't like, which is just their subjective opinion, to what works and what doesn't work, which really kind of gets at the root of that problem. So when you can when you can ask someone, okay, I understand that you don't like this control to be over here and that you prefer we move it over there. Why doesn't it work to have it, you know, where I have it here in this recommended position? And when you when you frame it that way, sometimes people will say, oh yeah, well the reason it doesn't work is this, right? And and you you get people talking about kind of the the actual usability and effectiveness of our work as opposed to just, you know, kind of this purely subjective viewpoint. That's so true. What kind of, what kind of arguments can you use explaining your decisions? Uh, so we would all love to back up our decisions with specific, you know, research, 
specifically for this project. But it's not always possible. We don't always have, you know, specific research. What other, you know, explanations can we give, be best practices and whatnot? Yeah, I mean, re- research is, is, is an interesting, um, kind of an interesting challenge in articulating design decisions in that it is, it is so not subjective, right? It, it's, it's, it's the most scientific way that we have of kind of showing that our work is going to have the intended effect. And so I think, um, I think it's possible to take it a little bit too far. You don't want to walk into a conference room and slap a bar chart down on the table, <laughs> mic drop, <laughs> nothing to see here. Like, and, and I, I have seen, I've seen people, I mean, especially people that kind of think in terms of like numbers. I have seen people, ha- I've seen it have that effect where it's like, oh, well, there's, there's nothing to discuss because clearly the analytics show that, or the A-B test shows that this one wins. And we, we need our stakeholders to be more engaged than that. We need them to participate in the decision process. And so always remember that the data, the data doesn't decide for you. It only informs the decision that you will make, right? Um, so that's, but that's only one part of it. I think, I think what's important to communicate is that there was purpose and that there was intention in why you did what you did. I think a lot of stakeholders who don't understand what we do assume uh, incorrectly that it's all about pretty pictures. It's all about just like moving boxes around and, and, and it's, and that there's a high degree of subjectivity and there is, but we are always more purposeful about why we did what we did. And we have a difficult time telling them that. And so, um, in the, the, when I give talks at conferences, one of the things that I do is kind of run through a list of what are common explanations. And these are things like, you know, telling people that it facilitates a primary use case, right? Or follows a common design pattern. I think it, if you can tell someone, you know, okay, we used this pattern over here because it was reused in a different part of the application. Users have muscle memory. They need to, they're, they'll be familiar with this pattern. And so we think that this will cause this task to be more efficient, for example, right? That's a, that's a great explanation as opposed to just saying, Oh, well, we reused it because it was already there. It was easy. It was in the library, right? Um, talking about goals, right? Well, one of our business goals for this quarter is to improve the, add to cart rate in our e-commerce site. And we think that changing the button color to this and making it a little larger and, and, you know, changing the interaction, that's actually going to improve upon that, that business goal, right? We have reasons like this uh, for why we're making our design decisions, but sometimes they're just, they're just not surfaced in our mind and we need to work harder to expose what those reasons are so that we can communicate them. And I would encourage you to just write it down, you know, before you go to the meeting, write up a little note to yourself. Why did, you know, why you did what you did? What problem are you trying to solve? How does this make it easy for the users? And uh, why is this better than the other alternatives that might be out there? I have a specific situation that happens more often than not. Uh, For example, we get together for a meeting, we discuss what's going to be done next, but when when the actual design process happens, it just doesn't work like that. Uh, and instead, I end up presenting something else uh, with a note that I tried this uh, with various uh, iterations and it did work out. Here's what I have instead. Do you have any like any any good strategies uh, to lead such conversation? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that's a pretty common situation for... Um, there's, I think there's a couple of different things there that you're describing. One is kind of the, we, we have a meeting, we agree on the way forward, you know, 
we designers go back to our desks and do some work and we go to the next meeting and we st- feel like we're starting all over again. The stakeholders forgot why we were there. They forgot the decision we made last week. They don't understand why we're showing our, the work that we're showing now. That's one common scenario. And I think the solution to that is to um, do a better job of taking notes. We like we need to write down everything that was said and everything that was decided. Uh, our, we need to have notes that we can reference so that in that follow-up meeting, that next time that we get back together and someone is like, wait, why are we here? What, 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 why are we talking about this again? You're able to just pull up the notes, you know, whether it's Google Drive or a shared docs or a wiki page in your repo, whatever. Like you need to have a central place where you keep all your notes that you can show them. Here's what we talked about last week. This is the decision that we made. And this is why we're back here talking about this again. So that, I think that's one scenario. And, there, and, and there's quite a bit of kind of advice in, in the book about, you know, taking notes and how those notes can be, can be effective. I, I've had what's really common. I've, I've had, uh, you know, managers change on a project six months later and they ask the same obvious questions that we were asking six months earlier. You know, wait, wait, why are we using this control? What is this purpose? What are we doing? And I was able to go back and find my notes from six months ago and go, okay, you know, your predecessor, your predecessor told us to do this. And this is the reason why, you know, when we kind of wrote down your notes are your, your notes are meant to write down the why we did what we did, right? So that we can look back on it and go, okay, this is why we made that decision. That doesn't mean that you won't have to change it later, but it, it is at least going to uh, allow you, prevent you from having to start from scratch from, from ground zero. Um, the other situation, which I think you described there, was that you realized, like in 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 a, in a meeting at a table with people or a whiteboard or whatever it is, some idea sounds really great and it seems like it's going to work, but then you go back to your desk and you realize why it doesn't work, and now you're coming back with a completely you know different recommendation. Um, in that situation, I think you need to bring both. And before you get to your recommendation, you have to show them what you discovered. You have to show them your process where you're like, okay, here's what we talked about last week and I tried it and here it is. And here are the three reasons why I think it doesn't work. A, B, C. So I took those reasons and I modified it. And what I actually recommend is this. Because if you don't bring that alternative, if you don't demonstrate to them visually why it's not going to work, um, then they're just going to say, well, you didn't even try it. You wouldn't even know, right? Just, you know, go back and, and try it again. You know, maybe you weren't trying hard enough. But if you can really just show them that here's, I, I did what we said. Here's why it doesn't work. That's going to make a much better case. You know, actually, it doesn't, it, it, it kind of contradicts one of my principles, which is uh, whatever requests I got, I never show them um, a thing that obviously doesn't work, in my opinion. Because it, it some odds are is that they're going to say, but that's just fine, which, uh, in my opinion, totally does not work at all. Uh, so how, how do you go about it? <laughs> yeah, it, it's interesting you say that because when I was, uh, when I was writing the book, I, I was sharing it with um, another person that, that manages a design team just like I do. And he, he had a very similar story where one of his designers had um, – gone to the client and the client had made some specific recommendations and she took back to that client later. She, she took back the exact design that they had asked her to do and then what she actually recommended. And the, the client of course chose what they told her to do and they, they discarded the one that she recommended and she was confused. She was like, I don't understand why, why did they, why did they pick the one that I didn't recommend? And his response was, well, it's because you showed them exactly what they asked for. So of course they're going to choose that one. 
while it seems logical that like you you should only show them the one that is recommended and i and by the way i do recommend always kind of presenting one design there's nothing worse than like taking 10 designs and putting them on the wall and then trying to mash them all together right so i i i'm definitely a proponent of going to your your clients and stakeholders with like the thing that you recommend but in this specific situation where there's something they've asked you for, if you don't show it to them, if you don't show them that you tried what they asked for, they're going to think that you're not listening to them. They're going to think that you're not doing your job and they're going to, they're going to have you go back and try it again. Um, we can't, the, the reality is we can't protect our stakeholders from all the possible alternate, alternate designs and ideas that are out there. We can't. What we have to do, what we have to learn to do, is to arm them with the language and the understanding and, and the why we did what we did so that they will be compelled to agree with our thinking on it. Because what's going to happen? I mean, gosh, Jane, even if you give, even if you gave them the, the, the design that you recommended, you didn't show them the one that they wanted and they agreed, okay, that's fine. Then we'll move forward with it. And, and you didn't, you didn't instill them with any of that logic or the thinking that was behind it. Mm-hmm. Then they're, they're, they're going to go home and they're going to show their spouse or their cousin or their best friend. <laughs> and their best friend is going to go, Oh, well, hey, why don't you put a monkey on it? And they're going to go, Oh, yes, of course, we need a monkey. And they're going to go back to you and they're going to say, Jane, put a monkey on it. Why? Because you didn't give them the knowledge and the information they needed to be able to defend that design for themselves. You see, we don't want people to fall in love with our designs. We want them to fall in love with the logic and the thinking behind our designs because the design is going to change. It'll be something different in a week or a month or a year. But the logic and kind of the thinking and the reasoning behind why what we why we did what we did, that will stand up to a lot more than just the subjective whims of our stakeholders. I love this one about falling in love with the specific logic and reasoning, not just the final picture. That is so gold. And I've never even thought about it this way. Yeah, we have to we have to give them the the words because I mean the other thing that's just as common, right, is a stakeholder goes into another meeting with a bunch of vice presidents and they all look at it and and if the person representing us is just throwing it up on the on the projector on the screen and saying okay here's our new design for this new application and everyone starts going ooh why did we do this oh I don't like that interaction why is the, you know th- this seems hard to use if that person doesn't have the same language to use to to help other people understand it then we've then we failed we that that's part of our job is to create an understanding about why we did what we did so true we don't have that much time left but i have like a number of situations where i'd love to have your brief take on <laughs> okay uh so kind of obstacles that usually arise in real life so obstacle number one is you don't think that your immediate manager, the one who stands between you and the client, is the wiser person, you know, and you would love to get direct access to the client, but you don't. What do you do then? Yeah, I mean, I've, uh, we're, we're actually facing this situation on a, on a client project right now where the, the person that we report to is very protective of kind of the users and the end client internally. This is an in, internal facing application. Um, and this is where kind of the complexity of relationships and human nature comes into the equation. Because if we really want to do the right thing for the business and for the user, then we have to be very skilled at navigating these relationships to get to the right people. And so there's, there's two things that I would recommend. One is that you have to build what I call a support network around you. You have to get people 
in other parts of the organization, whether that's on your own team, uh, whether that's on the client team, whether that's end users, you have to get other people excited about what you're working on so that when you're in a meeting, you're not the only one just up there saying, here's what we should do. But you have other smart people. That, so that if that manager, if you if you don't think that they're very good or that they don't really kind of understand that they're not the most skilled at making these decisions, then you need someone else who is that person's peer or even that person's superior or just someone else that that person trusts. And you need to pull them aside and you need to be like, and you can be direct, I think, in some cases. You can be like, hey, I really need your support on this project. Can you come to this meeting? You explain to them why you did what you did. And, and you explain to them that the purpose is to make sure that we can get approval for our work. And when you have other people speaking up on your behalf, it makes it much more likely that, uh, that the, the people around you are going to uh, you know, agree. Um, the other thing is that I think it's possible to build relationships with those clients or those users on the other end. Um, the, the client that I referenced uh, that, I, that we're dealing with this right now, um, we, we are at that client occasionally. We're on site and we actually know who some of these people are, but we technically don't have permission to like go talk to them, even though we're building a product for them and we want it to be useful for them. And so what we're, what we're going to do is when we're on site, we're just going to be purposeful about just kind of walking around and introducing ourselves to people and meeting people. Oh, you use this application too. That's so great. We're working on that. You know, our designer would, would really love to hear from you about what you like like about it or what's working for you or how we can improve it. And I think anytime you can kind of informally make your way into the organization to get to the right people and the right decision makers, that can be really effective long-term. You don't, you definitely don't want to step on people's toes. You're not trying to be deceptive about going around people. You just want to be good at forming the right relationships with the people that you need to be in contact with. Absolutely. One other little strategy is, uh, is trying to make that person look good. Uh, as well, not jumping over their head to the next manager or something, but instead trying to figure out a strategy that's both winning for for you and for them. Right. Well, that's yes, exactly. And I mean, at the end of the day, that's our jobs, right? Our our job isn't to design as much as it is to make the people above us and our organizations successful, right? And that that's ultimately what we have to do. And so that's where like that support network, if you can get other people to come to the meeting, if you can get other use, like, you know, if you're able to informally have these relationships and you get a user who can tell you, oh, you know, we really need this feature. Great. Mock it up real quick. Show it to your manager who you think is maybe not doing as good a job as they could. And then when they show it to the users and the users go, yes, this is what we want. Then, like you said, now they look good, right? And then you build that trust and you, you get to a place where uh, eventually those decisions get a lot easier. What are your best tips for managing with a committee of stakeholders? Um, well, don't do it. That's my first, <laughs> uh, that's my first piece of advice. Um, I, I think that they're always, and this is not possible in every organization, but I think as we need to try really hard to make sure that there is one person who's ultimately making the decision. Um, of course, we want to take feedback. We want to consider uh, what everyone's you know, advice or suggestions are. But at the end of the day, someone needs to be there to just decide. We can't wait for 100% consensus. Um, and there have been cases when I specifically asked our clients to let me do that, right? 
okay, who is it that is going to make the decision? And no one really knows. And so I would say, okay, well, then will you trust me to just make those calls? Even if you disagree, even if you're not sure, we have, it would be better to do something rather than nothing, just so we can keep the project moving forward. Um, I, I think that's the number one thing. They, everything else is just is just details. It's about managing a meeting and conversations. But at the end of the day, someone has to decide and move forward. I love this. Taking the ultimate responsibility for yourself. That's really awesome. Uh, a tip about number of versions shown to a client. You mentioned one is great. That is usually achieved by, you know, progressive enhancement going from wireframe, from strategy to wireframes to high fidelity when everything is an evolution. Uh, any other reasoning behind a single version? Yeah, I mean, I, I think we have to be able to tell the story, right? Like, like I mentioned earlier, you can't just, you know, slap the design up on the wall and go, ta-da, here it is. You know, there, there's more to it than that. And as you noted, you know, things happen progressively. We started out, you know, with design A and we went through B, C, D, E, and F to finally arrive at our recommendation. So you have to be prepared to tell that story. How did we get from A to F? And you even should have those designs, I think, available. You don't necessarily have to present them, but I think it's better to present them as a progression, as a progression of our process than as these are six different options, right? And I think that's the, that's the danger is, is it's all about how you present it. We started with A. We realized that A didn't work because of this. So then we moved to B. When we did B, it conflicted with this flow over here. And so we changed it to C and you, you tell that story, but you have to have those alternate designs available, even if you don't show them initially, because someone is going to look at it and go, Hey, why don't we do this? And you have to be able to pull that out of your back pocket and go, actually, we did try that. Here it is. And here's why it doesn't work. Right. And, and, and if you don't do that, if you don't have those available to show and to talk about, then someone is going to say, well, come back to me whenever you've tried that. Right. And I think sometimes we throw away all our alternate designs and we're not, we're not prepared to talk about why they do or don't work. As a shortcut, well, I, I can't say that in my life I've always had these available, but it definitely happens. It helps in the reasoning to just mention that we tried a few alternative paths and uh, here is why they didn't work and here is what we came up with as a result. At least you are mentioning that kind of anticipating their, uh, their ideas and saying that we already tried that. Right. I agree. I, I, it's, it's often enough to say we already tried that and it didn't work for this reason. And you don't necessarily have to show it. Um, but occasionally, you know, they'll, they'll want, you know, to see it for themselves. So sometimes there is a type of work that is obviously creative, doesn't have to be, you know, UX, but uh, let's say the visual style for a web application or a logo design or branding where versions and uh, you know are in inevitable uh, how do you go around these situations okay well yeah i mean there are definitely times when and, and i think what you're describing is a is a design that is going to be more subjective right where mm -hmm. um we're, we're not talking about breaking a user flow or making an ineffective application we're just talking about what we want to communicate but there's still a problem there that we're trying to solve right we're still trying to we're trying to solve a communication problem or an aesthetic problem or a branding problem. So even though we're talking about something that might be 
slightly more subjective. I think it's possible to present that work in that light and say, okay, we, we did this because we think it will best communicate the brand. Or we did this because the, you know, the, the previous design did not communicate this value that we're trying to communicate to our customers, right? It's still possible to present your work in terms of the problem that you're solving. It's just that instead of solving a user flow problem or a conversion problem, you're solving for branding and aesthetics and, and image. That's true. Um, well, I can still think that even if you have to present versions, you still you have to make them both kind of equally acceptable to yourself. So presenting something that you don't like is always <laughs> a bad thing. <laughs> so even if you're presenting two versions like I do, for example, um, it's, it's helpful to be sure that each of them is a successful path forward. So that's a really true AB split in that, you know, flow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think you need to feel good about anything that, that you're recommending. Um, The, the, I think the challenge as a designer is that we always, it, it's really, really difficult to create alternates that equally solve the, the problem. Um, and I think too often we have, you know, kind of the one design that we like and we spend way more time on that one. And so it, it looks better. It looks more polished. And that may, that, that alone may be the reason why, you know, someone approves it because the, the other alternate that we didn't like as much and we didn't spend you know, put quite as much effort and energy in. It's just not quite up to par, but uh, that I think, I, I think we need to be in the habit of, of creating, of forcing ourselves to kind of take a step back and create more alternate designs that attempt to solve the problem in, in different ways. And it's, it's, it's really hard. There's no doubt. Tom, thank you so much. I think we need to wrap this up and can you please tell us where can people find you and your amazing work online? Yeah, well, um, you can uh, find me on Twitter. My handle is just Tom Griever, T-O-M-G-R-E-E-V-E-R. And I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, TomGriever.com is my uh, personal website. Uh, Bitovi.com is our company, B-I-T-O-V-I.com. And uh, yeah, feel free to, to follow me, send me a message. I, I love hearing from people that have read the book or, or got some benefit from it. And of course, we're going to link to your book, which is called the same, Articulating Design Decisions. Yep, that'd be great. Thank you so much, Tom. Your wisdom is absolutely invaluable, absolutely amazing for our listeners. And uh, I hope uh, your, your work <laughs> flourishes using all these principles. Great. Thank you, Jane. <laughs> Have a wonderful day. Yeah, you too. If you enjoyed listening to this episode, please leave a review on iTunes. It will help other people discover this podcast.